Hello. Hi. Hi, Mayor. Hi, Anu. Can't hear you. Is it because our mic is connected? I'm up to Karwano. One second, one second. Huh? One second. Let me just see. Good, good. Can you can you hear me okay? Ah, uh, now I can hear you. I can hear you. I can hear you. So we've got this. Thank you very much. <laughs> just makes it a little bit more entertaining. <laughs> I'll show you my setup because I got this maybe about six months ago. And it's like this whole, like on a stand and it's hanging from the ceiling kind of thing in microphone. Oh, so why didn't you give us such a fancy one? This is actually significantly cheaper. And, and to your point, Anu, I had to have all three of my kids help me install it because I didn't know what to do. So you would have needed a lot more. I'm just power. joking. In fact, Deval, I'll send mine to you. You can give it no, to someone. No, this is yours. No, whatever it is. I know Deval. Deval said, no, just keep it as a present. It's a present. But, oh, great. No, can we, can I use it for karaoke? Yeah, singing? yeah, everything. See, what, what a great present. <laughs> lovely, lovely, lovely present. Thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
better picture, doesn't it? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I think you 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 tapped into actually two things very nicely. On one is trust. The three of us, I guess, have had multiple conversations in the last year and a half, especially given COVID. On we are seeing NGOs literally risking their lives, and many of them have passed because of COVID and because of them putting the safety of their community in front of their own. And yet, for the most part, donors say NGOs are not trustworthy. What bigger trust have we seen, and not just in India but globally, with groups literally putting their lives on the line for their communities? Yet this trust is still not there, and so that's hopefully one of the things we we hope to do in in these conversations is to help people realize that honestly the trust question is a little misguided <laughs> uh, because you know these groups are serving the community, they're from the community, they also know what are the issues and what are the solutions, and so I think that trust is a huge huge barrier that needs to be addressed and solved hopefully, and and I think the second is. There has come a point, and, and perhaps even CSR, to be honest with you, has propagated this even more, where NGOs are seen as vendors. And to your point, Anu, and I know you've said this again multiple times in conversations that we've had, it, it, it's giving the check is honestly the first step and a privilege. And then after that is engaging with the community. It's understanding what they're going through. It's hearing directly from them. And, and many groups, givers at least, see that as an additional transaction or admin cost. And they don't then invest in that. And if you don't know really the communities you're serving, just like if you don't know your investee companies, if you're an investor, then really what value are you adding? No, Deval, just one other thing is also in some ways, if you treat it as a vendor, if you treat a, an NGO, then there's also that power dynamic that comes in. You know, that sort of you know, I'm giving it to you. So you should be grateful, you know, for it. And that's not, I mean, in many ways, they are your customer. You're serving them. So I, I guess that's also an element that comes into it. Yeah. And I also, you took the analogy from the corporate world. We have shareholders who are there, fair weather people who only look at the profit. And if it's not there, they sell the stock. And there are others who look at other things that just now the company may not do, but in the long run, it has all the right things in place. So they have patience. Unfortunately, that's happening less and less in this world. It would be good, honestly. Number one, this podcast, as you asked me here yesterday, will be broadcasted across the world. And so many individuals that are listening to this will not have any idea of uh, who the two of you are and what has brought you to both acquire wealth as well as distribute it in a just and thoughtful manner. And, and so maybe, Anu, I'd love to, and either one of you, actually, if you can start a little bit about your own backgrounds and your history, I think that would be, that would be great. Sure. I come from an upper middle class family. And my father ran a small business, which, of course, was only for the boys, the two brothers. I was never, never encouraged to join it. And uh, then when my husband, who was an employee, a professional employee in our company, and I married, he was able to grow this business, really grow it. And when we went public, which was unfortunately a year after he died, I mean, sorry, we just went a before. just a year before. He couldn't enjoy the wealth because when we were growing, we kept investing whatever profits we had back in the business. So there wasn't much philanthropy or anything. It's just growing the business. But when the dividends started coming, that's when we realized that we are quite all right now. <laughs> And by training, I'm a social worker. So I definitely know what the problems are. Having said that, the trigger wasn't my background, but my son, who was very keen that substantial part of our wealth should be given to society. And he almost threatened me that if you don't, I'll go away to England. And 
I hate a gun being put at me. I said, oh. But then my family, my daughter, my son-in-law, we all sat down. He apologized. He says, that's not what I mean. But you are a social worker. Your needs are not much. Why don't we decide most of our money to be given away? And soon after that, he died. So that stayed in my mind that that was his wish. And what he said made a lot of sense. I was just not ready at that time because I was so involved with the company that the outside world really didn't strike me so much. If I can add a little bit, uh, Deval, I think mom's being very uncharitable to herself in the sense that, uh, you know, I, I believe that philanthropy, of course, money is really important. But I think giving of your time, giving of your skill set is as important. And there, mom and dad have always been giving of their time and giving off their skill set. And, and Mehed, I mean, you, well, well, a lot of people have lost loved ones in the last few months or even years. I think you've unfortunately lost your father at a very early age and then your brother. How did you cope with this? And I say this because we know, and we have also lost loved ones as well. I mean, how do you, when the future and life just looks so, so bleak, when, when you know, life is just taken away from you, how, how like, what was the reaction that you had? And, and then Anu, I'd love you to also talk about that as well. Uh, Deval, when my father passed away, he had just turned 60. And unfortunately, Feroz, my husband and I, and my little son were in the UK at that time because we were living and working there. And it happened very suddenly. Having said that, there was always a sword hanging over my father's head because he had had a bypass surgery and a stent put in a few years before that. But of course, it was a huge shock. And my father was somebody who, he was not just a brilliant person at uh, Thermax, but an absolute wonderful human being. So I, I really, really missed missed him as somebody who was a, a big mentor to me also in the business because I had only just started in the business. So it was a, it was a very big loss as a father, as well as, as, a, as a person in business. And then a year later, my brother passed away. Now that to me was just, good God, why, why us? Why us as a family? And I just kept questioning God. And I kept thinking, how unfair. And he was only 25. He was working in Venezuela and quite happy being there. And my father had actually gone there and persuaded him to come back to India and try out working in the company. And if it didn't work, he said, within a year, you go back and I won't stop you. So this young boy came back and, of course, uh, died on, us, on our roads coming from Bangalore to Pune very difficult to take that death. And I have to say, my mom, whom really I should have been there as a support for her, was of huge support for me. Uh, I'd love mom to talk about it because I think her philosophy and the way she, she coped with it uh, was incredible, incredible. I, I just remember a couple of things where on the third or fourth day after he died, uh, mom said, you know, why don't we go for a movie? And I said, what will people say? That, you know, we're going and sort of being seen in a theater. And my mom told me, why are you bothered about what other people say? Forget it. If it's going to be of solace to you and me, and we are the ones who've gone through this, let's just enjoy ourselves. You know, and if it takes away as a distraction, that's fine. Which was very, very helpful, you know. And, uh, and the second thing I think was, I think, I think mom and I went through a little difficult time also at the time because we didn't really talk about it. You know, we sort of skirted around the issue of my brother dying. And so obviously I was building up some probably anger, frustration. Mom was probably building up some anger, frustration. It was only... I think this happened in April and her birthday was in August. 
I gave her a card. We were in or, England. Yeah, we were in England, and I gave you a card or some some gift yeah. or something. I gave to my mom, and I kept it on the table in the night before she went to bed. And in the morning, when she came out, she didn't say thank you or didn't acknowledge it. And obviously, I just burst out, you know. And I and I said, you know, I'm doing so much for you, and I'm I. Put this together, and you haven't even acknowledged it. And then she cried, and I cried, and I think Feroz sort of tried to bring us together. And uh, and that's when we realized that I think there was a lot of hidden stuff, you know, that we were just putting it below the carpet and hadn't really talked about it. And I think that was really needed. And so that I think from then on. Things became so much easier. So a big thank you to my mom. <laughs> They will. When my husband died, the board asked me to become the chairperson, and I didn't want to. I just didn't uh, have faith in myself to be able to do this, and I had lots of self doubts. So there were two things I had to cope with. missing my husband terribly and assuming this responsibility so i went for vipassana program which is the buddhist meditation for 10 days it was a little difficult but i'm not a quitter once i decide i'll do something i did it and i found that extremely helpful i can't tell you i am a daily meditator for an hour and i just find that for example i think devil you said god takes away you started by saying but if you look around that's the rule all of us will be taken away we make rules that young shouldn't die or that it's a tragedy it's not a tragedy it's something that's going to happen which we haven't acknowledged and then we blame god for it there's nothing as certain as death all of us are going to die and we don't know when and how and not internalizing this basic thing we create so much anger sadness for ourselves we keep asking why 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 has no answer and it keeps on adding to our suffering so i always say that after a death of a dear one pain is inevitable you can't escape that but if you don't keep asking this why that will go away very fast and having said that am i prepared say for the death of my daughter who is the dearest to me or my son in law or my grandchildren i don't know time will tell me i can't be arrogant and say i've got over death i don't know that i don't know but just now right now it doesn't bother me that two people in fact in between i lost a daughter of 5 months also people say god has been very unkind to you and i said no i find him very kind i really think how we interpret death is very very important we don't talk about it this is a no no subject nobody talks about i used to touch wood like crazy i like a mad woman if anyone talked of death i would make my husband stop the car when there was no uh, what highway and there was the car and go to a tree and touch it i was so paranoid but today i know if i carry the whole forest with me i can't change my destiny and and you also you also believe you mentioned pain is inevitable but suffering, suffering is, is optional. optional suffering is optional yeah yeah, yeah. and again so many people are going through pain right now um and suffering i mean i know we all know people who've lost you know two three loved ones in a few weeks it is it is shocking and i think it it's just so hard i think for people who have gone through it personally and then to see that loss and then see and hear about just death all around i think there it is going to take clearly some time and what we're seeing at least is the individuals we know who have passed had access 
to something at least. And there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And we're seeing that now as we read the reports of death statistics this last few months compared to three years ago. So, you know, not looking at what COVID has done, but more how many people have died across India and how that number has increased significantly in the last few months. And so I guess in this time period, and again, you have all been very, you know, philanthropic and charitable. Maybe, Anu, if we can start back on after your son passed, what, what was the first few steps, I guess, that you took at that time? And then we can talk about if any of that has changed or increased in the last 18 months since, since COVID hit. I just want to uh, make something clear. When I talked about you can get over the pain and suffering, I think I wasn't so vulnerable in the sense I was 53, not a young girl who needed my parents. I wasn't financially in any way affected. So this COVID has made people very poor, people very, very vulnerable. They've become orphans overnight or they are without livelihood, anyone to give them the daily bread. So I'm not taking away their sorrow, huh? please. I mean, I think it's of a different order, especially with the poor. So after my son died, I was inquiring, who is worth going and talking to? And everyone seemed to say, go to Bombay and talk to Shaheen Mistry, because she started an amazing NGO called Akansha. So I went to Bombay and Shaheen says, I brought a long list of questions. I don't, I have blanked out a lot of things. I don't remember. And we took to each other. And in a few months, I suggested that we start Akansha centers in Pune. So I brought Akansha to Pune and Shaheen invited me to the board. And uh, very soon we realized that the few hours we spend after school with these children doesn't have a great impact on their final results. So why don't we try and run municipal schools? We run them. Fortunately, there was a very nice commissioner whom I knew. He agreed to give us a school. And that's how the school model started. Today, we have 21 schools. Shaheen, you know, her enthusiasm rubs on you. My meher got very involved also. So that's how my journey started. And one day, about 13 years ago, she said, I want to start something called Teach for India, which is based on Teach for America, which will impact the lives of many more children. Would you partner me? And I readily agree. So these are the two main things which I'm involved with. And the third thing is human rights. I feel very strongly for human rights. And I strongly believe CSR is not just giving money, but speaking up, preferably as, as business associations. Because if you do it individually, you could be targeted. realized this term just the last few weeks, uh, righteously angry. <laughs> and Nira said, oh, that, that describes you well, Babel. <laughs> so I think that righteous anger has only increased, unfortunately, in these last 16, 17 months. And just a vacuum of leadership across the board. It is so sad and disheartening, I think, for NGOs who are, again, are risking their lives and doing whatever it takes. You know, many of us with 30 to 50% of our staff being infected in the last two months, and yet no one is speaking out. And as we talk about vulnerable communities, I know, Mehed, you and others, the Forbes Marshall Group, Gordridge, Pradeep from Cummings, and others have come together to look at the inequalities in the corporate system. If you can talk a little bit about that journey and the social compact, again, there's so many vulnerable communities that have been overlooked for, for generations. And so if you can talk a little bit about that, I think that would be great. And what, what sort of, I guess, motivated both you and your mom to sort of look at these communities with, with a far greater degree of, of social justice than perhaps others have, have done in the past, and maybe even the two of you as a family? 
Sure, Deval. Um, you know, it was last March when we saw these hundreds of thousands of migrants walking back, dying along the way, uh, not having food to eat, no footwear while walking. I mean, it was just horrible seeing these uh, images. That's when Anu and I said, what's happening? Can we learn more about this? Because we didn't even really understand this whole migrant labor issue. That's when Anu wrote to you, Deval, and to Dasra saying that, uh, you know, can we understand this a little more? We requested uh, Dasra to uh, bring thought leaders, people who've actually gone through it, who are uh, helping all these migrants to come and talk to us and just give us a feel of what's happening out there. And that's when we realized that it's not something that has happened just because of COVID. I think COVID has only surfaced the issue of huge inequality at the workplace. And that's when I think a few like-minded corporates decided to come together. And you, uh, Dasra, helped in terms of getting NGOs who are working on the ground, who are, who's been doing this for 20 and 30 years, like an Ajivika Bureau or a Jan Sahas, or um, Gagan's uh, NGO come and really help us, first of all, to understand what the issues are. I felt almost embarrassed. I've visited sites so often and I've probably seen women workers. It hasn't even occurred to me that do they have a toilet? Or if somebody is working at our factory, are they getting, if it's a woman worker, is she getting the same wage as a man for the same job that she's doing? I've never asked, you know, it's never bothered me. It's never really surfaced. And I think it was really helpful for us, first of all, at least for us as a family, first of all, and then even for many of our senior members of uh, the company to understand that there are so many things that need working on. And this is not just an HR or an IR issue. This is something that everybody in the organization has to be sensitized with. I mean, for example, if we are not going to give a slightly higher price to our vendors so that our vendors can pay even the minimum wage, to his contractors or his workers, we're doing a huge disservice. So I think, I think there's a long way to go. So we started off with a self-reflection and it was like a voluntary appraisal. Uh, not so that we could hit ourselves saying that we haven't done this or that we could compare and compete with other companies who have or haven't done it. That's not the idea. The whole idea was it's a self-reflection as to where are we? What's the benchmark? we are setting for ourselves. And then where do we want to head to? It's a long journey, Deval. It's not something that can happen overnight. Let's also face it, Anu and I are not in an executive role in the organization. We have to convince our people. I have to say that that wasn't very difficult. But when it actually comes to it, are we going to be able to do it? When we spoke of wages, you guys are not just talking about minimum wages. You guys have pushed us to think about living wages. As I mentioned, there are many vendors who are not even paying the minimum wage. So how do we first get to that before we get to the living wage? We will have to decide, and we have, I have to say, decided that we will invest. So I think it's, it's a journey. But I'm really happy to say that these few companies who've come together are really thinking about it and seeing how can we move on this journey. You know, Devil, because we've been given, giving to philanthropy, we felt we were very sensitive. But we were so blind to the issues in our own company. And we took very good care of our organized labor because the laws are so strict and I think our workers get some of them over a lack today and oh, we, would pride, we would pride ourselves but never think of the others. So this really opened our eyes that better be humble and realize there's a lot of mess 
in your own things which you have to clear up first. And I'd also want to say, uh, Debal, in many ways, for organizations, one is you can treat it as a charity, but I don't think that would be sustainable. I think the return on investment is huge. You know, it may not be in the short run, but in the long run, if you look after your people, your people are going to want to work with you. Your people are want to, going to want to do anything for the organization. I mean, it's almost like a quid pro quo, you know? So it's in everyone's interest to do this in the long run. We're fortunate in the early 2000s to work with organizations that were trying to root out child labor. And at the time, there was more in the garment and apparel industries. There was far greater investor and consumer pressures. And so we worked with a few organizations in Tamil Nadu that were focusing on child labor. And, and clearly, when you root out child labor, that means expenses go up. The reason people employ children, the reason people exploit informal workers is the same, economics. Because of the investor pressure and consumer pressure, there was clearly this idea that this had to be changed. And to be honest with you, with global apparel companies, it was very much about we should clean it up before the press comes to us. And this was around the same time that Nike was in the press with, you know, footballs in China and children making them and stuff. And and so do you see... I guess, a time where consumers and investors, and and I think, I know you kind of touched upon this in terms of your shareholders, right? There are certain shareholders who at the quarterly profits don't make it, they will jump ship. Uh, But there are other shareholders who realize, again, the long-term gain, and and I think we're all benefits of that because we have health insurance, because we have a roof and or a head, because we have social security that allows us to work in these times and still get paid a salary. That's why we're being able to be productive. But Anu, do you think there's a time that investors and consumers will start also demanding this and then paying that premium? Yeah, I think, but that may take a much longer time in India. For example, companies that deal with coal abroad, many, many shareholders will not touch those shares. In India, Lord knows how long it will take before. Yes, now it's just quarterly profit and yearly profit. So I wouldn't wait for the investors or customers to make, but we have to first wake up. If we were not even aware, how can I expect others to put pressure on us? This has really opened our eyes. I agree. Only one thing that I would add is that investors are now looking at something called ESG, which is the Environment, Social and Governance Angle. I'm very glad that that has come because I think some sort of external pressure is required. So I I just hope people embrace it in letter and spirit. Sometimes you put it in your annual report as a tick mark because I think it's an excellent framework if you really do it well. And so it takes care of all three. May honestly, what percentage of shareholders in our company because we own most of the shares. So ours is not a hmm. right uh, thing. But say in any company yeah. in India, what percentage no. of shares? Mom, I agree with you. It's only just come in, first of all, in the, in the world. I think it will take a long time to penetrate into a country like ours. But at least it's a start. And like you said, you know, coal, 10 years ago, nobody bothered. Or 15 years ago. But today, people investors are saying that we will not invest in an organization that uses huge amounts of foreign coal. investors foreign, foreign investors, investors absolutely not but it will happen mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. our our anyway our stock market has so many fii's mm-hmm. that hopefully they will also dictate you know in terms of what it, it will happen mm-hmm. but i think it is a matter of time yeah. and, but wouldn't you like it is ideally that it's not driven by external pressure, but we ourselves realize this is unfair and we need to put it in order. That's ideal. Yeah. Ideally, yes. But but reality is that most people, unfortunately, human beings are such that we need some external pressure to get something done. But I agree, if we can do it ourselves in the voluntary manner in which, say, a social compact started, that's the best way to make it sustainable. Mm -hmm. 
And unless idealism meets reality somewhere, it will always be to parallel running, never meeting. So we will talk on podcasts, we will do many things, but <laughs> things will remain as they are. Yeah. <laughs> you could not have said that better, Anu. I also know that there have been instances in the past where at a company level, you have had to take certain stance. And, and Anu, like you were saying, it was not because external environments had pushed you to take certain stance that were ethical or that you felt ensured the integrity of the family, but you all had decided to, to do that on your own. Are there any examples that you'd like to share with the listeners beyond even this, where as an entrepreneur, as a family business owner, you have decided that, you know, this is the stance we'll take and whatever it means in the market, so let it be, but we need to live with ourselves at the end of the day. And that's more important than anything else. We want to sleep well at night. Exactly. Yeah. No, but Devil, in India, we all criticize corruption. We are armchair critics and keep adding to it. We quietly add to it, but grumble about it. So when I came back from Vipassana, one of the things I said, henceforth, we will not make any compromise. We were never a very naughty company, but yes, we were a little bit. We were. when uh, We might have done it through our agents, you know, third party, directly not. And I remember my son was alive then. He was very angry with me. He said, you don't even understand the business. You don't know what amount it will have to be for, for, give, for, for God. What do you say? Um, we have to give up, to give up, give up, up business. You know? what if dad yeah. had said that, I would respect it because with knowledge, he's doing it. You're so impulsive. <laughs> but over time, I think it has become absolutely a rule in our company that we will not, we have to give up some government business. We have to give up a small amount, not a lot, because we never did a lot in any case. Or not go into areas where we have to deal with certain sectors. But it can happen. It can happen. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, people would have said, are you mad? And the worst devil is people who pretend to be honest and take shortcuts. I wish when CII about 15, 20 years ago brought all the corporates, not all, they made a committee and said, let make everyone sign saying we will be honest. And I said, sorry, I will not sign that because that's a Boy Scout promise, which means nothing. Unless we really sit down and say, why are we corrupt? Of course, giving bribes for getting a business is a different thing. But the factory inspector, uh, the boiler inspector are so, so corrupt that your company can be closed down because one of your windows was not, was broken. And an absurd thing like that. So till you give them. So I said, let's sit together. And nobody did that, but I refused to sign. So I feel facades are the worst. Yeah, maybe another example that we can also give is that about... Uh, 10, maybe 12, 12 years ago, uh, we were starting a subsidiary company, which was into build, own, operate, you know, where we put in our own money and we own the asset in the customer's premises. We had the option of, uh, of doing fossil fuel, predominantly coal, whatever, you know, oil. And, and we took a stance. This is where Mayor took a stance. I must say where green energy is concerned, she's brought our company much closer to green. Yeah, well, I, I, I took a stance over there saying that I think we, even if it means that we don't grow as fast, let's start somewhere where we say it's going to be all green. And I remember there were a lot of people who said, you're being so stupid and naive. There's so much business out there. And we could grow so rapidly. And I said that I, I don't mind if we don't grow rapidly. I don't mind if we grow slowly, sustainably, profitably, but stay green. And I'm so happy 12 years down the line, that subsidiary is genuinely, they haven't touched coal. They haven't touched oil. They haven't even touched gas. 
just now there are a few murmurs saying, can we just do a little bit of gas? <laughs> so we're looking to see, okay, can we consider gas? But it's which is fastest growing uh, small. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's very, it's doing well. It's growing fast. People are, are very happy with the stance that we've taken, but it required us to say no, 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 no. You know, Devil, I also say that if you are obsessed with growth, cancer grows. But what kind of growth? Do we ever sit and think that uh, it could be in the long run very harmful to the company? And so I really think obsession with growth is not a healthy thing. Uh, Mom and I had read a book uh, a few years ago where there's a lovely saying which says that business must be based on growth and profit or else it will die. But if it is solely based on growth and profit, then also it shall die for it no longer has a reason for its existence. So it has to be beyond growth and profit. No, exactly. And I think any entrepreneur who starts something to be rich is usually the ones who fail versus entrepreneurs who start something to be the best product around whatever, whatever it takes. And then they happen to become rich because of being the best product around, but not the motivation of a profitability and scale in itself. I think that is. Um... And Deva, there are so many family businesses because we are part of this family business network. There's so many of them who are there for since the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, you know, it's amazing. Uh, so they must be doing something there that is so long term. You know, you don't think of this quarterly obsession of top line and bottom line. You don't think of just doing it by hook or by crook. But you're really looking at being almost a trusteeship of wealth creation, you know, mm. And, um, and seeing it through the generations. Uh, but they will also, uh, don't forget, our main business is based on coal. No, 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 longer. no, 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 no way. I'm I, sorry. I take total offense oh, okay. when you say what that. What percentage? Today, we are at 70% green. Really? 70% green as I'm a company. Proud. I'm yeah. very happy. So please knock that off from the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> 10 years ago, we were at 40% and uh, green. And today, 10 years later, wow. I'm very happy and really proud of our people because they are the ones who have taken it to 70%. And of course, uh, they were the market because we are in capital goods. So you can't really dictate you know, the market decides what, whether you give a coal-fired boiler or you give an oil-fired boiler. But we are coming out with more and more products internally, which give customers a choice. So they have a choice to move. And then when we say, listen, we'll put up the plant for you. You don't have to, but then we will always do it green. You know, so so in some ways we're trying to move that pendulum, which, which I'm really very happy And it with. attracts very good companies with this model? Not only does it attract good customers, but it also is attracting the right set of people in terms of employees, because youngsters today, more and more, are looking for an ESG company, you know? And it definitely sort of allows people, for example, in the US, there's still a lot of hesitation to go green because there's this mindset of that means job loss. Yet there are examples like even Thermax, which actually it's job creation. It's the other way around. And again, you're working with people that you admire and respect more as well, which is always nice to have as an added bonus in anything we do. You talked about generations. And, and I know, Anu, as you said, your father started the company yet. And, and so it's not at all from the 1600s, as, as Meher was talking about. But you have grandchildren, Anu, and they have seen uh, the two of you being very, very involved in philanthropy. How have those conversations gone? Are there, is there an interest for them? And some of our listeners may also be speaking to their kids about giving as well. And so how have you all talked about this with, with your children and grandchildren? Mayor and I were a little insensitive. We were so engrossed in our NGO, especially at that time, Akansha, that the family got allergic to. They said, enough, we don't want to hear about it. 
you know. And then I must give credit to my son-in-law, Feroz, who said, let's not make it a game. We've never really sat down with the children and told us what our goal is, how much we want to give, why. So for the first time, about 10 years ago, no, less than that. Eight about, years, yeah, maybe about seven, eight, eight, years seven ago. eight years ago, we had a two, three hour meeting and they also listened very carefully. And I think all of them are very proud that we are doing it, but they still make fun of us in the sense that if we ever nag them for doing something in the social sector, my grandson once said, Oh, no, I promise you I'll give whatever percentage you have decided. Now leave me alone. <laughs> you know, kind of. So sometimes it's not helping if you don't uh, do it gently and not push it on them. Don't do that. I remember Leah, my granddaughter, was so social conscious when she was young. She used to bake brownies and things, sell it to the neighbors and give it for charity. You know, for, she used to do these animals, things for animals. For animals. Yeah. But also we've never taken into account their area of interest. Trust our area. Feroz likes to do something for health. You know, so we've, but these conversations have made us realize that it can't be Anu specially and male dominated giving. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. But I, I think I think they were probably seeing what's happening over the years. Definitely, there is some osmosis. I mean, just in a little way, like um, Zan, he's giving, you know, where I think it's like give a child an education. So part of his salary goes every month. I didn't even know about it. One day, something happened and I asked him and, and he said, oh yeah, I've been doing it for the last one year. So obviously something has has gone in and right now it's more in terms of part of his salary check he doesn't really have the time right now or the interest or the interest even the interest right now i agree leah at the moment is helping me in a little way in terms of this whole vaccination hesitancy and so i've involved her and said help me to put this together help me to put the myths together so that we can have somebody talk about it. Starting with our own contract workers, they don't want to be vaccinated. So I think this this is a little bit happening, but probably it'll take its time. Of course, and I think just like any decision that an adolescent or teenager needs to take, it has to be their decision, none of ours, regardless of its forcing in business or forcing in philanthropy, forcing even to what college they go to. I think it's, it needs to be their decision. Uh, and all we can do is, is, is implant the values, which from what I've read, it, it happens actually at a very early age. And so as parents, we, we actually have nothing to do after the age of seven, besides just give them clothes and food and they'll do the rest <laughs> on their own. But I think Zahan, my grandson who's 25, is in a way subtly saying, I do my little bit without tom tomming and talking so much. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe. I don't know. Though he's very proud of us. I know uh, he tells in some way or the other, he'll say. So it's a very uh, yes and no kind of a reaction that they have. Great. And, and you talked about vac vaccine hesitancy. Can you speak a little bit more about that, Meher? Because I don't think listeners understand. And of course, this is a phenomenon across the world. It has nothing to do with education or, or you know, a poverty. It, it exists. But if you can speak a little bit about that and maybe other COVID initiatives beyond the social compact that you all have seen either being implemented either directly by yourselves or some of your NGO partners. So Deval, we are seeing a lot of vaccine hesitancy and I didn't realize it. I thought it was probably in rural India only. Till our own, um, our own HR head said that in our own factory in Gujarat, we have a thousand contract workers. So all our permanent workers are fine to take the vaccine. 
But our contract workers have put their hands up and said that we are not going to take it. And the kind of myths I'll tell you, which I didn't even realize, and they are, I mean, they have to be talked about and they have to be spoken to them. Things like once, first of all, I don't know anything about the vaccination, which is the right one to take. What are the fallouts after the vaccination? If I'm going to miss, have to miss three and four days because I have a high fever, am I going to be paid as a contract laborer? You know, and every day counts in terms of money coming home to the family. People are, have myths like uh, reproductive. Yeah, is it going to impact my reproductive system? Is it going to make me impotent? Is it going to stop my menstruation? Women have uh, asked. You know, so there are no. And can of, you give me a guarantee that I won't get COVID? Because we know so many people who've taken both the shots and have COVID, and there are rumors that people have died also. So why would we take the risk? Correct. And I'm sure that with some of them at least, if we actually reach out to them and we explain as to what the myths are and what I mean, wherever we can. I'm sure many of them will see logic. But you know, if the whole vaccine program was well planned, if we as uh, executives or owners took it in front of them, it would take, we have a lot of credibility. Our people have a lot of trust. But we've not planned it well. We took it months ago. They are taking it now. So they can't even demonstrate that it's okay to take it, you know. Yeah, but... But now we're trying to see things like if, if a union head were to take it, you know, in front of them. Uh, so we're trying to see various ways in which we can do this. And right now we're working with Akanksha Foundation to see in terms of is there some way in which we can spread it to all the families of our children to begin with. Families who live with them. Yeah, who live, who with, live them. with them. Because we said if you only cover the parents and not the grandparents who live, it's no use. No, no, of course, because it's, I mean, with, with our phones, clearly it's the fake news is there 24-7. And so if you don't actually have it right then and there, there'll be more, unfortunately, more articles and messages about the negative effects. And again, this is yet another area where we have seen, you know, in the past, whether it was polio or other aspects of uh, health, our stars, our celebrities came out in full force and did fantastic jobs and talking about polio vaccine or or even TB, but you don't you don't see that right now. I mean, we don't have stars coming out and, and talking about or whoever they respect, like you were saying, these community leaders. And if they are speaking, it's not as loud as the voices that are speaking against the vaccines <laughs> with their own medicines. You know, Devan, it also doesn't help uh, in terms of if tomorrow we ask people to sign like an indemnification. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's putting... Uh, into their head saying that, you know, is there something wrong over here? So, so in some ways we want to be clear ourselves, but at the same time, you're putting more doubt into the person's head by mm. making them sign an indemnification. But we never even thought of it with our employees. It's in uh, Akansha we thought that they might, if someone dies or something, you know, uh, no, but what I'm saying is that there are many people who have to sign this. You have to sign it to the hospitals. Like, for example, when you do an MOU with the hospital, you have to indemnify them because otherwise they won't give you the shot. But man, that's true of anything, MRI, anything. Not, not polio vaccine. I, I don't think so, at least. Huh? I'm, I'm not sure they will. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I know... Uh, again, it's been a while since, you know, we've all been out and free, but it used to be in malls and stuff. You'd see the health workers with their little, you know, the drops and there was no signature. When they came to your house, maybe they signed something. How many years it has taken of India course, to get yeah. rid of polio? Right. Yeah, yeah. Huh? That's one thing. And polio is not infectious. Yeah. So they could, you know, there's so much of fear around this area. This disease is full of fear and True. No, no, of course. 
Yeah. No, and, and you're right. It took 50 years, though, I mean, for people to actually start taking it, if not longer. And so it was definitely a, a large time frame. I had a few more questions. Sorry, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. I think one was, and Anu, you spoke a little bit about human rights. That's been a sector, I guess, that you've been focusing on. Can you give some examples? Because I think many people understand education. They understand Akanksha, they understand a Teach for India, they understand, you know, the, the the plethora of education NGOs that exist because we've experienced education ourselves and can attribute that as one of the factors of us being where we are today. But I think we all get confused when we hear the term human rights. Can, can you talk about a few of the groups that you've supported and, and what does this really even mean? Say, for example, the sedition law, which says that if you say, it's supposed to be if you really create trouble, you know, and uh, what do you call it? You incite. incite people. But it's used so commonly today. It's any person who does work for the poor, it's used again. That's a human rights issue. When a woman is raped, in parliament they said, but see how she was dressed. That's a human rights. I, as a woman can walk naked if I want, and nobody can touch me. Understanding that, that it's my right to decide, I'm not going to be foolish and I know the environment, but to, for my MPs to talk like that is really terrible. Even, I would say, education and health being neglected is a human rights issue. I mean, if you don't have the most basic things, how will you, you know, so there are so many things, and I and we are supporting independent uh, journalism, uh, which supports its uh, initiative of uh, Azim Premji and Rohini Nilikan, and we are all supporting it. To me, if we don't have independent free press, that's a human rights issue. Manual scavenging, it's banned. But mostly there are women who are doing it today and nobody's bothered about it. It's all under the carpet. We don't look at it. So we have beautiful laws, but who's implementing? If a woman, especially a wife, goes to a policeman and says, my husband is beating, and he says, but isn't he your husband? As if he has a right to beat you. And, and many of the these groups that do, again, fantastic work in the crux of any democracy is how you treat the most marginalized of citizens. How do we, I guess, convince Indian donors to support these initiatives? Because it is as much about our constitution and being Indian as anything else is. Have you had some of those conversations? If so, what have you been able to tell people on it's not an either education or human rights, but it's an and. <laughs> education and human rights are, are required. Unfortunately, in India, uh, a lot of people fear that you might come into conflict with government if you support that. So they don't want to take a risk. That's one area. Somehow, as you say, this is more material. You can see it, a person dying or not going to school. Whereas human rights is a little bit more not material, you know. You're, it's like uh, governance. They say, let's first fulfill the basic things and then talk of human rights. No, no, thank you. And, and Meher, I mean, one of the things that we spoke about was in addition to money, time is also something that's really important. And I know you sit on the board of a few organizations, including Catalyst for Social Action, I believe, Shakti Foundation. I'm with Shakti Sustainable Energy Foundation. And which other boards do you sit on? And what is your role there as compared to corporate boards? So Teach for India, Akanksha. And I'm uh, involved with uh, social venture partners. So I think on the board, it would be fundraising would be an important one. The second is in terms of helping the organization think longer term, think strategic. The third is, of course, I mean whatever they need. And it's basically what they need. If they needed somebody like Akanksha, uh, three years ago, we had a change in CEO. So as part of the HR committee, we were there to interview people and see who could take over as 
the CEO of uh, of Akanksha Foundation. But I think it, just being available yesterday, being available, day before yeah. we had an Akanksha board meeting and we talked of vaccine. And so we formed a small group of people who could help. And the CEO yesterday said, can you talk to me for one hour? What are the issues? So we had a one hour Zoom. So it could be anything, anything. that's bothering him. Can he take our help? And then the strategic level comes more at the board. You know, so, uh, I mean, even, even to just understand what what they're doing, what does all this online education mean? So we've, we've sat in on some of the classes, you know, just to hear what, how do they engage students? And in some ways, I'm trying to take it back to Thermax and say, listen, you cannot have three and four hour webinars and online training without making it engaging. And let's learn from the way the NGOs do it. Oh, we have a lot to learn. They do it so beautifully. We have a lot. Yeah. You know, Akansha and Teach for India are our passion. <laughs> so we could go on talking, giving our time. And it just is wonderful. I love them. In fact, you know, they were, in fact, you know, the two years that our fellows give to Teach for India is the biggest form of philanthropy. You know, giving of their time and uh, and really, and then of course, 60, 70% of them stay on in education. What more than giving of your time, your passion, your everything? I couldn't agree more. In fact, I think 60 to 70%, like you said, perhaps stay in education. I think the rest stay in the NGO sector. And so that is fantastic. We've been very fortunate to hire multiple TFI fellows or Gandhi fellows. And it is a great, great space. And, and I think that's one of the things that over time, we're trying to also re- help the sector understand that sometimes, if not many times, the NGO staff all around, including the founder and frontline, are actually bigger philanthropists than the ones who are giving money. Because at the end of the day, it is a helping society. And reality is, while it is phenomenal that people write checks, the NGO frontline worker is doing far more than writing checks. <laughs> they're, they're giving their life. And they are, that is the philanthropy. But you're not talking about the Guardian Fellows, Aditya at the Aspen Institute. Were you there? Did you hear him? No, I didn't. I he didn't said hear him, one but... of the things he found very difficult, which we would all find difficult, one of his friends' father needed a hospital bed in a Jharkhand, in Jharkhand yeah, or somewhere, some, anyway. Some and the hospital said, okay, give me 250 rupees. 20,000 rupees, 20,000 rupees. So he said, but how will you create a space for me if I give you? He says, this person's going to die. I'll just throw him out. Can you imagine? So you're replacing a human life for your father. No, I mean. It's such a difficult choice, 20,000 on top of it. I mean, these things. I mean, on the same note, one of our close friends who runs an organization in Delhi, father was 80 years old, was on ICU, in ICU just a few weeks ago on a ventilator. And as a family, they decided the opposite, which was, let's have our father go in peace and let have this bed go to somebody who needs it. And a 26-year-old got that bed. And I mean, this is... This is what we have gone through as a country and will continue to go through for the next couple of years. Our healthcare system has buckled completely and the inequalities that have been there forever um, are just being magnified even more. And yet it brings out the best in our peoples. I read that a headmaster with three teachers walked 14 kilometers and stayed in the school. And it was such a remote village that by five, they would have to close the doors. Otherwise, animals would come in. And they taught their pupils one-on-one because they knew they could never learn online. They didn't have the devices. So where in the world would you have such dedication? dedication? So the best in people also we've seen and the worst in people. Given everything you've seen and we continue to see, uh, what, what gives you hope that we will not only survive this, but come out stronger, like like the two of you have uh, through your own personal struggles? People like you, Shaheen, also mm-hmm. Mia, Saurabh, and 101 other people who are doing, and just ordinary grassroots level work being done. 
our own fellows, our own students. When the first outbreak, the way they all went around distributing food packets in the slums. So there's in, so much. Including our own frontline workers, our, our hospital staff, our doctors, nurses, maushis, everyone. I mean, I, I, I really admire people who have uh, been working throughout this uh, pandemic. I mean, we just sit on the Zoom yeah. or in our home and just write out checks for, for this cause. We haven't gone out and worked at all, at all. So I really admire people, Robin Hood, the whole movement of Robin Hood. They go to people's houses. It's remarkable. What people have done in this time has just been extraordinary. And what was considered ordinary before is not ordinary anymore just because they are risking their lives. And, and it's, it is amazing. Thank you both for today, for all that you do. I hope it wasn't too painful. I hope you felt it was an okay conversation. It was yeah. a pleasure. Total pleasure, Devan. Really lovely. Thank you. You, thank made, you, it, thank you made it you. so easy. No, it's you all make it easy. I just have to sit back and and then do nothing. <laughs> it's pretty much what I do my whole life, by the way. So it's... <laughs> Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Anu and Meher's work, you can go to our website, thusra.org forward slash NCE. We have got show notes, links, and much more about all of our guests. Until next time, stay safe. No Cost Extension is produced by Vaca Media.